Coming up on the Dilip Ram All-Rounder podcast, episode eight, the 1996 Cricket World Cup. Viras Pulagasundram is my guest. He'll be on shortly. We started recording this and we realized pretty quickly that we couldn't do this within an hour or even an hour and a half. So I decided that I would make two episodes about this and it deserves it. It's a Cricket World Cup and it's one of the most famous Cricket World Cups, not only for what happened on the cricket field, but what was happening off the field. And I think that's really important in this episode. This episode, I'm calling it Origin Stories. And it's all about the build up to the World Cup, the lead up, the context, what was happening in Sri Lanka, what was happening in India, what was happening in a lot of these cricketing nations. Because 1996 was an interesting time in world cricket. You had the rise and fall of a number of great cricketing nations. And we look at all of that in this week's episode. We look at Hot Seat and we'll do an overview into the World Cup. And then we come back for episode nine, where Virash and I do a real deep dive into some of the top five moments, the best performances, disappointing performances, some Oscar categories. Would you make a movie about this? And will you remember it in 40 years time? I had a lot of fun doing this episode. One of my favorite episodes to record. I'd probably give it an award if I could, the Dilip Ram Podcasting Award, but I'm, I'm biased. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. Got a lot more exciting content coming through in the next few weeks, looking at NBA and tennis. See you soon. With me is a gentleman who's no stranger to India, no stranger to the Bangalore wicket either. In fact, the captain of the Pakistan team that beat India here in uh, 1987, Imran Khan. Does the wicket look any different to you from then? It does look different. It's a lot firmer. The wicket we played was quite loose. Uh, although it's, I still think it's going to spend. Okay, one leading question. If you were the captain, you win the toss, what would you do? I would certainly bat. I mean. Uh, it's not only because the wicket might just get lower as the match goes on, uh, but also because of the crowd pressure, you know, once the team puts on a total in a quarter-final match with a lot of tension, I would much rather that I, I defend a total rather than chase runs. Hello and welcome to the Dilipram All-Rounder podcast. It's the 24th of September. It is 2.35 p.m., and we are talking about the 1996 Cricket World Cup. My guest today is Virosh Pulagasundram. I gave him a small intro in the introductory part of this podcast. But Virosh, welcome to the show. Dil, I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be here. I've got a glass of red in my hand. I'm the lower <laughs> North Shore. Mate, can it, get be- can it get any better than this? We're going to speak about Sri Lanka's glory days, you know, before they used to get bowled out for 50. So I'm stoked about that. Half our listeners just turned it off. Knowing that. <laughs> No, I'm excited to talk about it. Virosh, I know we both go back since year seven, since choir days and cricket days in year seven. But my first question to you, and I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In another life, you're a superstar athlete. You already are one, but which sport would it have been? Yeah, I'm definitely not a superstar athlete, mate. But uh, look, if... You know, I had another life and I was like a talented sportsman. Definitely want to play test cricket and 2020 cricket for Australia. Um, I reckon, like if you're, a, if you're an international athlete and you're away from your family for like 10 months of the year, you need to do something you're passionate about. And to be honest, 
even though I like tennis and rugby, like cricket is the sport that like really kind of gets the juices flowing. And I'd rather play for Australia than anyone else because... Yeah, like you were I, born. No, you were born in England. I was born in England. Yeah, it's a good fun fact. You know, <laughs> fun fact for anyone, for anyone, anyone out there that in cares. Chelsea. Uh, in no, Chelsea. I was born in Hammersmith. Okay, but uh, you know, lived in <laughs> lived lived in Chelsea. You know, um, you know, I wanted to be uh, yeah, Hammersmith. You know, born with the the common man, and, <laughs> and then you know <laughs> went on to live in, in Kensington for like three years. Relax. Love it. But Love um, it. nah, bro. Like, like definitely, I'd want to be an international cricketer, but I'd want to play for Australia because. I think there was a guest that came on your show like a few episodes ago and he was like, oh, I'd want to play for India, like the rock star status. Yeah, I get it. But the thing is, is if you play for Australia, you can also have like a semi-normal private life, right? Like you can take your kids to the park, you can go to a restaurant, you can go to a cafe. If you're an Indian cricketer, like that's, there's just no chance that happening. Mm. So like, yeah, you've you got the rock star status, you've got all the money in the world, but like you can't go to a cafe with your mates. No. So like anyway, that's, that's if in another life, test cricket for Australia. Can you do that as a Sri Lankan cricketer? <laughs> the problem is you won't get paid by the board. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, sure, like, you can play for Sri Lanka, but like you won't have any money, bro. You've got to rely on the sponsors. <laughs> Who's the GOAT? Oh, mate. It's so obvious, Brad. It's Bradman, man. Like, you know, there have been people that have come on your show, right? And they're like... Oh, Schumacher, LeBron. <laughs> and then I think Bob said, I think, sorry, uh, Anubhav was the, the previous, yeah. uh, one of the previous guests on your show. It was like Tendulkar. Okay, I get it. It's subjective. Like, um, I get it, bro. I get it. But I think for the GOAT, you've got to set a yardstick, right? And the yardstick for me is how much better was that man or woman in their sport than anyone else, right? And Bradman averaged... 40 runs more than any other batsman in the history of test cricket. And I challenge anyone to point to a sport or whatever and say that that particular person was that much better than anyone else in the history of their sport. Like even if you go to LeBron, Michael Jordan, Schumacher, Muhammad Ali, whatever, were they that much better than the next best person in their sport? Probably not, I reckon. I mean, maybe there's like a sport like curling or something where like darts, <laughs> darts, you know. There's a name, Phil Taylor. Oh, Phil Taylor, yeah. yeah. Maybe Phil, like maybe Phil's like, you know, 40 runs ahead of the next best darter or whatever, right? But dartist, dartist? I don't know, whatever, yeah. whatever. Anyway, whatever, right? Dartsman? But, dartsman, maybe. Oh, that's sexist, bro. Maybe darts, darts person. Darts person. But yes. look, Bradman, man. And, and I think... Yeah, I think everyone else, maybe they've, they've been on acid when they come on your show, but they're just, they're just not right. That's a great answer and great analysis. Uh, Aditya called me out for this where I said, you're entitled to your view, but I was a very strong analysis. I um, Very, very convincing. And I mentioned it before, but Virash is a lawyer and you can clearly see he's well able to make reasoned arguments. Virash, sort of transitioning into cricket, but I want to say two words and get your immediate thought. Of course. But it's a very random one. Mm. What's the first thought when I say Primadasa Stadium? <laughs> right. You're going to be disappointed with my answer. Like usually when you're like, what's a, what's, you know, you mention a stadium or something and somebody like, oh, I remember when I went with my dad and we watched yes. this game or whatever. To be honest, <clears throat> and this is a Sri Lankan in me coming out. The first thing I think about, about Premadasa is like, why is that stadium named after a politician? Like. Oh, it's so, after a politician? Yeah. So I should give a bit of background. Premadasa, Ranasinghe Premadasa was famous, was the former president of Sri Lanka. 
That stadium was once upon a time called Kedarama Stadium. And then in 1994, they renamed it to Premadasa Stadium. I think, I'm guessing here, but I think it's like in memory of him because he was assassinated in the early 90s. So right. I think I think they named it like, you know, in memory of him. But I don't know. I'm of the view that like sports stadiums, like you should just name them after like famous sports people or just like name them after like, you know, where they are, like the Sydney Cricket Ground or something like that. Because political figures are, also, are always like divisive. So... That's unfortunately my, my memory, but there have been like so many good moments there. Like Sri Lanka scored like 950, which for anyone that doesn't know about cricket is like the highest score in test cricket ever. Against India. Against India on the fe- featherbed. Um, <laughs> may as well have been AstroTurf, that piece of pitch. Um, but yeah. Look, and that was at Premadasa, right? That was at Premadasa, yeah. Yep. Jay Suri got 340. <laughs> like yeah. that was lit. I was going to yeah. say that was my memory of Premadasa <laughs> Stadium. <laughs> Uh, we, I, yeah. we mentioned a random word. I know a lot of listeners would not immediately recognize what Premadasa means, but it's one of Sri Lanka's largest cricket stadiums. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right, man. I think it's I think it's like 35,000 capacity, so bigger than Lords. Yes. So that's, that's, that's pretty big, man, in it's Sri Lanka. The, it's the Sri Lankan Lords <laughs> for cricket. But that was my immediate thing. The India, uh, Sri Lanka scored the world highest, the highest cricket test score of all time mm. uh, back in the day when they had that, you know, the halcyon days of Sri Lankan cricket. So <laughs> that's something we are exploring on today's show because it's the 1996 Cricket World Cup. Yes. But before we get there, Virash, you sort of touched upon it when you were talking mm-hmm. about which sport you'd want to be a superstar athlete in. But I want to understand a bit more about your relationship, your love with cricket, because cricket's an interesting sport which has a love-hate relationship with a lot of people. <clears throat> there are a lot of people who will say... It doesn't make any sense to them, the game. It's a waste of time. They don't understand how you can play for so long and you may not get a win or a loss. You might have a draw. But take me back into how you sort of started with cricket and what made you fall in love with the game. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I alluded to it before. Like cricket's the only sport I'm really passionate about. Um, so I remember when I got into it. It was a 98-99 summer. Alex Stewart... England toured Australia that was back when England just got pumped by Australia for fun <laughs> um, and uh, it was a one day tri-series and sh- three tri-series and um, uh, Sri Lanka played along with Australia and England in that tri-series and um, there was like a great win for Sri Lanka and England uh, sorry against England they chased like 300 Jai Wardner who was like 20 at the time or 21 scored 120 Morulli got called for chucking in that same game we'll go we'll go we'll talk about stuff like that later but you know um and that's when I got hooked I got hooked like the commentators were way better than they are now yeah like Richie Benno Tony Gregg Bill Laurie Ian Chappell like commentators who could like string 10 words together um and who actually could write properly um and I think my dad picked up on how passionate I was um, about cricket because before then it was like I don't know Thomas the Tank Engine, Power Rangers, yeah. you, know, you know Arthur. So, oh, oh, Arthur's a classic, yeah, yeah, Artie. Um, <laughs> but uh, but then uh, he picked this up and we used to play heaps in the backyard. So my my parents' old house it was a small house, but we had a big backyard which was like perfect for cricket. And I was also really lucky because my my parents were pretty young when they had me, like they were in their like late twenties. So my, my dad was kind of in his thirties. Like he always came back at like 6 PM and during the summer, sun's still up, we used to play. And there was no YouTube back then. So he just bought me him and like my grandparents, my uncles and aunties 
would just buy me like cricket books and cricket magazines. And this is like before YouTube, right? And it was like through reading those that I fell in love with like the stats and the stories behind all these like old test series, one day tournaments, like world cups. And it was actually from these magazines that I learned how to play cricket. So, you know, on YouTube now, they'll be like, this is how you bowl an inswinger. This is how you bowl an outswinger. But it was on the, through the magazines that I read, they'd be like, this is how you hold a ball to bowl a leg cutter. This is how you bowl a ball to bowl an off cutter or different types of slower balls. Yep. And then I'd put that in practice in the backyard. And then if I felt confident, I'd like bring it out at like training and then games and stuff like that. And same with batting. It'd be like, if you hold a bat like this, these are the pros and cons. And, you know, you'll play more aerial shots or you'll be a better player on the offside, whatever. So it was through that that I kind of fell in love with the game. And I probably liked the fact that you could kind of work hard at it. You kind of required half a brain. And there are other sports where like, pure athleticism can just like can dominate and I wasn't like the most athletic person like I wasn't a natural track and field person or something like that or star or something like that but cricket was a game where I felt like you work at it um you'll get better and if you have half a brain and you know how to analyze the game um it'll work in your favor so anyway all those reasons I kind of fell in love with the game we both played at Trinity um played at Trinity and then you went on to play Shires did you for Stratfield I did. I played Shires for Stratty. Played a bit of grade for Sydney Uni back in the day. Yeah, yeah love yeah, it. Yeah, but um, yeah, now yeah, Dill and I played together back. Yeah, we played we played together for many years. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, we um, I I I miss those those days. Like some people are like <laughs> when they when they reflect on their school cricket days, they're like, oh, I feel sick when I smell grass. <laughs> But, um, and to be honest, I used to fall sick. Oh, bro, I, I've never told you this, but <laughs> in year seven, when, if we were playing away from Trinity, I used to turn up. So we used to, so Dilip and I played in like the seven A's, or I guess the equivalent is like the under 13 A's. Yes. And, uh, every time I turn up to a game, not at Trinity, but if we were traveling away, I used to throw up. At, at, at the game and so this became, it became like a ritual <laughs> like my dad would let me out of the car and I'd be like throw up because I was just like so nervous and I don't, I don't know you why you were also the skipper so I, was, I was it maybe a little bit of added pressure I think a little bit of added pressure because you, you're never you can never relax or I mean obviously if you're batting and you get out you can relax but in the field you can never relax yep. you're always thinking you know about moving you know fielder here or there or you're thinking about your the orders of your bowling if a batsman's getting on top you're like man how do I get this guy out do I you know what do I try now and then the problem actually the biggest problem I had and I had this same problem when we played in year 12 together was there are a couple of egos you got to deal with and that's actually the most difficult thing I'm not going to name names because that's you know yeah <laughs> but like that's the most difficult thing especially yeah. when you're a teenager it's like how do you deal with that anyway so that was yeah that's probably why I was anxious as well it explains in a nice way how a lot of us growing up fell in love with the sport it's a challenging sport it can be rewarding but it can also you might do nothing for the whole day and your team won so you're happy but it, it's mm. challenging frustrating when you're batting it's 1v11 because you've got 10 fielders and one bowler all at you all hoping for the same result and so it can be very it can be isolating at times when you're a batsman but that's why we love the sport that helps us shift into the 96 world or the 96 world where the world cup was going on and i know you said you started properly following cricket in 
98, 99. That was when you have your first memories. I would say a similar way. I wouldn't say this. In, in 1996, I can't say I remembered everything about this World Cup. I might have remembered parts of it. But what was, what was happening in 96? 96 was an interesting time for both of us. We were both, I think, in kindergarten, holding hands we were, we were. at school, <laughs> learning how to read and write. Bro, I was playing with Thomas at Dan Genji and yeah. I wasn't watching the 96 World Cup. But, you know, I, I do have like some memories, but like, let's be honest, I wasn't yeah. really watching well, it. But. but contextually, we're in kindergarten. Yeah. So kindergarten <laughs> students were willing to learn, learning about the world, learning about everything. And outside of that bubble, the world was in a different place. You had just you know, out of interest, you had Princess Diana and Princess Prince Charles. They'd officially divorced. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do people care about that? <laughs> so that but that's ninety six. This is this is the world we're living in. So Diana and Charles have divorced. Yeah. Nintendo They'd released their newest gaming system, Nintendo 64. Okay. Right. Did you have one? No, bro, I didn't have a Nintendo 64. I had a place. Uh, bro, if anyone <laughs> anyone that knows about me knows that I'm technologically stupid. Um, <laughs> and I I think I had a PS, but uh, I just wasn't a big gamer. Like yeah. I was just, you know, yeah, like some some of our friends um, are, are big gamers. It's like, oh, they, they get a real kick out of, what's this, World of Warcraft? No, what's, yeah. what's it? Is it World of Warcraft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just like, what? Why? <laughs> like, what's going on? But no, I didn't have a Nintendo 64. I had like a PS, I think, yeah. uh, something like that. Well, yeah, I yeah. St- Virosh and I both went to UNSW and... His computer savviness was, it clearly showed because he would come to class pen and paper, the, <laughs> the old fashioned way, but he did very well doing it. Look, the advantage of pen and paper is that when it comes to exam time, you, you don't, it doesn't feel weird to write. That's a good point. That's a, you know what I mean? Although I, nowadays everyone types their exams. Yeah, nonsense, bro. Gonna, <laughs> we're, using, you know, we're losing a skill, man. Like the, there's muscles in the hand. What's going you know, <laughs> to happen to those? Good point. So we got 96, what's hap- but what's happening in cricket in 96? And I want to spend a bit of time on this. Yeah. It's a very interesting time in world cricket. You look at some of the teams, you had different teams on the rise and different teams on the wane. The first team in 96, even in test cricket and one day cricket, was the West Indies. They were in a precarious position. They, we all know and have all read about the, the strong West Indies teams of the 70s, the 80s. Well, come the middle of 96, it's a very different West Indies team. The athletes that they once were um, generating for cricket were now turning to basketball and other sports, athletics. And so they didn't have the stars there and they were on the wane. It was, it, was a, it was an older team with some stars that were getting closer to retirement. And I think in 96, we all thought this was probably their last chance to do something on the world stage. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the Windies, look, in 96, they had, a, they had a pretty good team. Like, they were, they had Brian Lara, who was, in my opinion, the best batsman at the time. Like, Sachin's reign comes, like, 96 to 98. But Lara, 94, 95, early 96 is, in my opinion, best batsman in the world. you got Ambrose and Walsh, who are probably, you know, the best new ball pairing. Like, there were some other good fast bowlers. Oh, Wazim and Waka were good, so they're probably on par. And then he had Richie Richardson, who was a great captain. Oh, sorry. Let me take a step back. He was a very good batsman. He was an okay captain. Um, and so there was, you know, four or five guys there who were genuinely world-class players. And then the others were kind of like good good international players, but not, not stars. And I think it was kind of reflected in the Windy's performance in that World Cup that they were, they were a little bit inconsistent 
so like they had glimpses of oh wow we're we're a really good side and they had glimpses of uh we're not we're actually not that great but that same kind of um arrogance kind of was was almost there like they lost for anyone that doesn't know they lost to kenya who is who's a minnow right but then they beat south africa um because brian lara to be honest played an awesome innings i got 100 riddle Um, me that it makes no sense (laughs) well the thing is is i think the west indies so actually um yeah this this yeah this pod sorry this podcast series as you said is like all about stories about the time it's not just about the stats so Shada Ugra, who's a famous uh, female Indian sports writer, she was a young uh, journalist at the time. I can't remember who she was working for, but pretty much they were like, no one wants to go to watch Kenya West Indies, so you're going, right? <laughs> to, to, to watch the game and, and, and write about it. So she's like, yeah, whatever, fine. Um, <clears throat> she turns up and she's like, the Windies, the, 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 I guess the impression that everyone got um, was that the Windies were a little bit arrogant and you can see it in some of the shots that they play. They got bought out for 93, but you can see it in some of the shots that they play that there were some loose shots. And for anyone that doesn't understand cricket, loose means, I guess, cavalier, not well thought out shots. And there's another famous sports writer, Mark Marques. I think that's how I pronounce it, Marques or Marques, who was like, <laughs> when Ambrose came to the wicket, right? They're like eight for something, right? Eight for 80 something. He's like, you could see in his eyes. He's like, do I have to save this team with the bat now? <laughs> like how ordinary are we? But sorry, to, to, to go to your point, Dil, like the Windies were, they were still a decent side who could win a global title, but they by no means went into that tournament as as one of the favourites. But it's the last time they've ever made the World Cup semifinals. Um, they haven't made the semifinals of the 50-over World Cup since then. And you wouldn't have thought that at 90, in 96. No way. But no way. It was an interesting time for West Indies. So you had West Indies on the wane. We had Australia mm-hmm. as, a rising, as a rising force in international cricket. I would say from 93 to 96, we were too young to watch a lot of their games, but the Australian team was really finding itself. They had the makings of a very strong bowling attack with McGrath joining the team, bowling well. You had Shane Warne bowling very well. And then they had the hallmarks of a very strong batting lineup with Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh, Ricky Ponting coming into the team. Mm. I think at that time they were probably thinking that they could make an impression at the World Cup and they had the confidence to do so, having beaten West Indies in West Indies. Yeah, I think at that stage, to test cricket and one-day cricket, while it was a separate sport, it wasn't as delineated back then. If you, no. if you were a good test team, you would be a good one-day team. Yeah, I think that's generally. I think that's generally the case. I mean, Australia did make some, you know, one-day only picks like Michael Bevan. Although Michael Bevan played a little bit of test cricket, um, kind of in the twelve months, or maybe the twenty-four months leading up to that. But he was like. Stuart Law is another one. They were like genuinely picked as one-day players. Um, and they showed a bit of thought with their batting order. Like Mark War opened the batting. He didn't bat in the middle order. Ponting was batting at three. He wasn't batting at three in the test team. He, he was kind of just breaking into the test team at that time. He, he got 96 against Sri Lanka that summer on debut and got given out LBW when the ball pitched like three <laughs> three feet out, three, three foot outside leg. Um, couldn't refer it back then. Yeah, he couldn't refer it. No, no DRS. Um, <laughs> but look... I think Australia backed themselves. I don't know if, if they were the favourites, though. India would have definitely definitely um, thought they were a chance. 
They, yeah. they had a really good side. It was the World Cup was in the subcontinent. And, you know, Tendulkar was emerging as, you know, I said Lara was the best batsman of this time, but it, it's, it's coming to the period where Sachin starts to take over. Um, Anil Kumble is a really good leg spinner. Mm. Um, Azar is, you know, he's the captain, unequivocally the skipper, very good player himself. So that they had a good side. Um, and we'll get, we'll get, to, we'll probably get to this. And Pakistan had a good side, but we'll get to this later. I, despite all of that, I, probably the team that planned for this the best, arguably, is the team that ended up winning uh, the World Cup, which was, which was Sri Lanka. But um, I think Australia backed themselves, but I, I would say they were one of the favourites, but perhaps not the favourite. If the World Cup was in Australia, sure, they were the favourites. They would have been the favourites. But I think in the subcontinent, India and Pakistan would have you know, fancied their chances. I agree. And going to Sri Lanka, so we have 96. Sri Lanka had just toured Australia yeah. in 95, 96. Mm. You had mentioned it. And this was a eventful series in Australia because for a number of reasons, some not good. The Sri Lankans were accused of ball tampering in the first test. And then in the second, on the second day of the second test, Murali, Murali Dharan was called for ball tampering, not ball tampering for chucking. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, Peter Roebuck, and the reason I want to talk about this is because it does cross over to the world cup. Both teams felt that they were going to meet again at some point mm, after this series. Mm. But Peter Roebuck at the time in 95, when Sri Lanka toured Australia said, this was the day of the um, Murali uh, chucking incident. He said, there's no subtlety in MCG's day of shame. This was a day of empty triumph and personal sorrow. I love Peter Roebuck as a cricket journalist. Excellent I thought he writer. always wrote, yeah. he always wrote really nice, eloquent articles. But at that time, I think set Sri Lanka up because they experienced a lot of hardship in Australia. And while they lost the test series and while they might've struggled generally uh, to win games in Australia, it probably set them up for this world cup in a, in an indirect way. I think um, Sri Lanka became a lot more resilient on that tour. Um, and uh, Ranatunga was, he was the captain of Sri Lanka and was captain uh, for them during the world cup was uh was a strong-minded chap, if we can put it that way. Yeah. Um, he was not one to acquiesce to uh, the, um, I suppose, the, the bigger cricketing powers, which were Australia and England. India hadn't quite emerged as on, on the same level as Australia and England in terms of their importance and influence in the cricketing world. That would come later. And so, you know, Ranatunga's view was that, for example... When, when teams would tour Australia, his view is that Australia got would get put up in these four or five-star hotels and the visiting team would get put up in three-star or maybe if they're lucky, four-star hotels, right? And it's just little things like that that annoyed him, right? Um, then, of course, yeah, you know, you mentioned the ball tampering thing. I think the, 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 the tour, to be honest, uh, uh, there's a few things really to unpack here, but the, the tour, to be honest, was actually a good one for Sri Lanka in terms of preparation for the World Cup because it allowed them... So after the test series, a, a tri-series, which was a one-day tournament between Sri Lanka, Australia, and I think the West Indies was played. And it gave Ranatunga and Dove Watmore, who was the coach, an opportunity to experiment 
with um, <clears throat> the composition of their lineup. And this is where the idea of Kalawitharana and Jayasuriya opening um, came to fruition. Uh, and they and Ranatunga and Dub Watmore thought, actually, I don't know if it was Dub Watmore was in, in there as well, but both of them or one of them thought, instead of just in the first 15 overs, knocking the ball around, trying to take the shine off the new ball, why don't we have two guys that try to hit over the infield in the first 15 overs? And for those who don't know about cricket, in the first 15 overs of a one-day game, you're only allowed two people outside of the inner circle. So pretty much that means only two people can be more than 25 or 30 metres from the bat, which means that if you hit the ball through the infield, it's, it's probably going to go to the boundary. And so they thought, well, let's use these two guys who actually um, are boundary hitters as openers and let's let's see how we go. And we'll, we'll have a fairly steady, stable middle order who can rectify things if our plan up top backfires. And Kalu actually was the one who scored runs on that tour. He got three half centuries. Jaisari didn't score over 30 once in the one-day tournament. Right. Um which was interesting because then in the World Cup, it's like the other way around. Carlo can't score a run and Jaya Saria <laughs> makes runs. Um, but Carlo Tarana gets a lot of credit for that World Cup and he scored like next to nothing. He averaged 12.6, <laughs> but his keeping was really good. Yes. Um, anyway, but uh, the, thing, the, the thing with that tour is, yeah, look, it made Sri Lanka more resilient. They could experiment with things and they would, uh, and that would put them in good stead for the World Cup. But the thing, the thing is that I think Australian, the Australian cricket board gets a, like they get given a pretty tough rap, I think. Hmm. Um, so a lot of people make it out to be always the Australian cricket board versus the Sri Lankan cricket board. The Australian cricket board actually was super generous to Sri Lanka before that tour. They actually invited Sri Lanka to play a full test series England didn't do that. Like they had, they they didn't do that for ages. Um, they then gave the Sri Lankan cricket board a hundred thousand Aussie dollars to tour. And there was like five and a half thousand US in the Sri Lankan cricket bank account at that time. Really? Yeah. So it's like a hundred thousand is like bro. It's like Christmas, birth, <laughs> birthday, boy, day all come at once, right? So was a hundred thousand to for Sri Lanka to tour Australia? To, to tour, I'm pretty sure to tour Australia, yeah. right? Then what happened is they realized, oh, Sri Lanka doesn't have a coach. And they gave him another 100,000 and they said, hire Dove Watmore, who was in Victoria at the time. But Dove Watmore was a Sri Lankan burger who's, I think his parents, I think, had moved to Victoria or whatever. So he grew up in Australia. What does burger mean? Burger is, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minority in Sri Lanka, which is usually it denotes that you have a, a mix of European blood and then either Tamil or Sinhalese right. blood in you. So you'll see a lot of, um, so they're usually, not always, they're typically quite fair-skinned, but okay. you will have, they will be like dark, you know, what we call dark burgers. I, I don't like that term, but it, that, that's, you know, okay. that's a phrase thrown around. But um, yeah, it usually means they have European blood in them. Um, anyway, they're like- I learned, I learned something. You learned something, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm here to teach, I'm here to teach. Um, anyway, double, like now 100,000, you take Dove Watmore. Then they then Cricket New South Wales came to the party and they pretty much gave the equivalent of a donation. And they said, here, take Alex Contouris, who's the physio for New South Wales, and take him as your physio. So he became the Sri Lankan physio wow. and was their physio during the World Cup, which is huge because in a World Cup, when you're playing like a game every few days, 
the physio is so important to make sure the players recover properly, their strength and conditioning is appropriate, all of that stuff. So, you know, he was, a, I think he was a very important reason why, how, you know, not only why, maybe I shouldn't say that he was a very important reason that Sri Lanka won the World Cup, but he was a contributing factor. And, um, you know, I think without good medical staff, it's very hard for, for teams to compete at a global tournament. So, But do we know why Australia gave... Did Sri Lanka have some photos of some of the board members? <laughs> some of the board members, right. in Uncompromising positions. I just, I got, I got, I actually don't know why um, they, you know, made these. I mean, I don't know if it was a, it, it was a donation or if it was a loan with the understanding that it would be paid back. Right. But whatever it was, they, they fronted up some money which allowed them to hire a coach and a physio, which they didn't have. You got to remember these guys were not some of them are not really professional they're not professional cricketers they're part-time bankers not investment bankers like you know bank tellers insurance salesmen you know whatever yeah. and it's like oh by the way i play for sri lanka you know um and the cricket board couldn't pay their players properly they had five and a half grand in the bank account like paying the players was an afterthought so my goodness the australian cricket board don't get enough uh credit actually um obviously what in some of the other things that unfolded were, were quite ugly um but i think it wasn't the cricket board versus the sri lanka the australian cricket board versus the sri lankan cricket board i think it was you know, maybe the umpires like daryl hare plus you know a fairly fired up australian cricket team um probably against against sri lanka um as opposed to it being kind of a board versus board issue Now, he's done it again. I just can't see how umpire here can be calling no ball here. His back foot is in a perfectly legitimate position. It's the one before. That's the back foot. And for me, that is perfectly legitimate. So I can't find... Well, this has appeared from nowhere. This guy's bowled a lot of overs in Australia. And all of a sudden, from nowhere, he's now being called for bowling no balls. Well, I hope he's not calling him for throwing. He seems to be walking straight down the and he calls him very late, so I'm sure he's calling him for throwing. I hope it's not, but I've got a terrible gut feeling. I tell you, Bill, having looked at that, there is absolutely no doubt that he's called him for uh, throwing. That leans into one of the issues that was present at the World Cup, which was the civil unrest in Asia, particularly in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And the in this World Cup, Australia and the West Indies ultimately refused to play two of their round-robin matches in Sri Lanka. Mm. And the ICC uh, termed those games as forfeits and gave Sri Lanka the points. But do you want to just take us back to what was happening in Sri Lanka at the time? Yeah, sure. So pretty much two weeks before the World Cup, or two and a half weeks, 31st of January, the central bank of Sri Lanka is bombed, suicide bombing. Um, allegedly committed by the LTT, which is the liberation of Tamil Tiger Zealand. And 91 people die, 1,400 people are injured. There's like foreign nationals also injured. So it's pretty bad. For those that don't really know, the central bank is the equivalent of probably the RBA getting bombed in right. Australia. So it's it's significant, right? You know, uh, gold reserves were held there. Significant amount of business was transacted through that institution. So you're bombing the central. And this is, you know, it's in the heart of Colombo. You know, it's not some outstation not not that that would you know minimize 
the, the loss of life. But what I'm saying is there, it was a targeted attack and uh, it, it was yeah, clearly thought out, well, reasonably well thought out. That happens. And the, as you said, the, the Aussie team, the Aussie and West Indies teams, they are not going. And the ICC yeah, kind of do their investigation. They said, no, it's safe to, to play in Sri Lanka. Um, Lawrence Thilaker, who is an LTT spokesman based in Paris, comes out and says... What's LTT? Sorry, LTT is Liberation of Tamil Tigers. Okay. Sorry, yeah. sorry. I was just yeah. Tamil Tigers, yeah. yeah. I'm learning here. He's <laughs> <laughs> a spokesperson for the Tigers and he's based in Paris and he says, look, we our objective here is not to harm foreign sporting teams. You know, our... Um, issue is with the Sri Lankan government, um, and so we, yeah, pretty much we're not we're not going to hurt you if you come and if if you come and play here. Then uh, that still wasn't good enough. Uh, I mean, I understand. I mean, you t- you got to take that with a grain of salt, but that still wasn't good enough for the Australian and West Indies teams. Then Chandrika Kumaratunga, who's the president of Lanka at the time, goes, "Look, fine, we'll give you head of state level security." which pretty much she said, we will fly you from India into the game, end of the game, after the post-match presentation, all that, we will then fly you back to India. Wow. So you don't have to stay in Sri Lanka, right? For me, that should have been good enough. Now, obviously, it's easy for me to say in hindsight, you know, I was, obviously I wasn't like playing or traveling. You You're know, in kindergarten. I'm in, ki- <laughs> I'm in kindergarten. I'm like, why won't Tubby go? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that should have been good enough. In fact, Ian Chappell said, you know, forfeiting a match should be an absolute last resort, you know. Um, and if you're given head of state level security, you don't, have, you, need, you don't even have to stay overnight in the country. That should be good enough for you. Um, anyway, they didn't think that was good enough and didn't turn up. And I reckon because it was Sri Lanka, I reckon they could get away with not going. I think if the tournament was held in England, I, I don't know whether the same decision would have been taken. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it was interesting because on the 9th of February, the IRA bombed the Docklands in London, but no one spoke about India and Pakistan withdrawing from their tour of England that year. No. Um, so anyway, and um, it's actually interesting because Mark, Taylor, Mark Taylor's asked this question at the end of the tournament after they've lost to Sri Lanka in the final, everything's done and dusted. He's like, hey, do you regret... He gets asked by a journalist, do you regret not going to Colombo? And um, he says something which is... I feel like... kind of felt like being like, stuff you, Mark Taylor. Um, was He was like... I won't quote him verbatim because I don't know the quote verbatim, yeah. but he said words to the effect of, look, when we travel overseas... We get taught to, or we get told to respect and appreciate other cultures. And with this situation, you have to look at it from both, you know, in both people's shoes, from, from both sides um, of the spectrum. He's like, put yourself in our shoes. Uh, we don't live like this in Australia, right? And it was interesting that he said that because the only countries that toured were India, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and a combined India-Pakistan 11 that traveled before oh, the World yeah. Cup. I'll, I'll go into that in a second. But, and it, 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 his statement almost suggested that, if you read between the lines, oh, it's okay for those countries to go to Sri Lanka because, you know, they're used to, they're used to this. You know, they're used to, mm. 
as if as if life in South Asia and Africa is cheap and life in Australia is is yeah. more precious. It was it was a statement which I really like Mark Taylor. I think he was a great captain. I really do. I, I don't use great. Um, I don't just throw the word great around. I thought mm. tactically he was a great captain and, and he's a good commentator compared to some of the others um, at the moment. But to make a statement like that was, I think, quite wrong. And I think it was ignorant. Like, he, I don't think he knew it was, was wrong. He didn't mean it maliciously, but it came out in that way. And it's it's actually raised in Mike Marquez's book, who he's, he's a cricket, uh, he's a writer who wrote, wrote about cricket uh, amongst many other topics. And he actually writes a book called War Minus Guns. And it's about his travels through India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka during the World Cup. Um, and he mentions, he raises uh, that as a big issue and, and a reason why there is that divide between the East and West at that time. Um, because there's just a lack of willingness of Western nations to understand what's going on, um, you know, in, in South Asia. And, and yeah, and, and so I think, uh, I guess where I'm going with this is that Australia, you know, probably didn't fully appreciate the magnitude of them not playing um, in Sri Lanka and uh, probably overstated the risk to their to their lives. Um, it's easy for me to say in hindsight, sure, but you know, given that other countries toured, I think they easily could have toured and there was no evidence uh, before that or even after that of the LTT ever attacking um, foreign sporting teams. So... You know, yeah, I think they would have been okay. I think you captured the moment pretty well there as to what was happening, what was the thinking with the Australian team, and also what the feeling was in Sri Lanka at the time. That point about Ranatunga, I think Arjuna said after Australia withdrew or forfeited that game, he said, We want to meet them in the final because that would have been the only time they could have met, and they got they got that wish, they got that wish, and I think the two times I've seen Sri Lanka under adversity have been when in in this 96 World Cup where the matches were forfeited Mm. and then also when Murali was called for chucking against England in that Mm. one day where Sri Lanka famously chased um, a 300 plus score. And so they're the two times I've seen Sri Lanka where they've experienced some controversy and they've come out in flying colours. So um, it it was really good to see. It sort of leans in towards the... The segment I want to do with you, Virachi, is hot seat. Who came in under the most under the most stress? We've sort of covered a few of these, so I've got a couple extra that I wanted to do. The first you called it was India as the main host of yep. the World Cup. Yep, they were hosting seventeen. Were they the main host? I don't know. Gaddafi Stadium is where the True. final was played. Maybe you could argue Pakistan was the main host. I don't know. Yeah, I'd say it's evenly balanced, actually. Yeah, to even, be even, even, even. Okay. Sure, sure. But yeah. I would say a lot of pressure was on India. Yeah, definitely. They'd won in 83, but this was seen as, you know, a World Cup where they could really show that they were the number one team in the world. So they come under a lot of pressure. I had the ICC in hot seat because... <laughs> It's probably the first time where the ICC had to really grapple with international security concerns for a World Cup, for a cricket event. And mm. I, I don't know if they came out with flying colours at the end of it, but they did their best to uh, create and organise a World Cup that was in, in the subcontinent and including Sri Lanka for the first time. That was no easy feat. And my last one was governments, just, you know, governments, the Australian government, Sri Lankan government, Indian government. Mm-hmm. 
I do find it quite ironic when, and it's happening a lot with Pakistan nowadays, where all of these teams indicate that they're happy to fly to Pakistan and play. Mm. And they, you know, Pakistan makes arrangements for uh, a series to take place. And then in the preceding months, perhaps one or two months before is when teams change their mind and then it messes up the whole cricket calendar and everything. So I do have some sympathy for these developing nations where, yeah, the security concerns are slightly greater, but it does say something about, you know, if you knew you weren't going to play two years ago, you might as well <laughs> confirm that rather than... Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I wonder what I wonder what happens behind the scenes. Obviously, they get intel from uh, the equivalent of, I don't know, Department of... Is it, I don't know if it's Department of Foreign Affairs. I don't know, maybe like Secret Service or whatever. And, and they kind of say, oh, you know, we've got a tip off that this may happen. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, that is a sad thing about Pakistan. The, the one thing I will say about, about that World Cup is... Um, the 96 World Cup is the South Asian countries really came together. You know, at the moment you have such a significant geopolitical, uh, you know, rift between India and Pakistan, um, as we all know. Um, And in that 96 World Cup, the three countries really came together. They obviously traveled to to each other's countries, Um, India and Pakistan, to try and show the rest of the world that it was safe to play in Sri Lanka, flew to Sri Lanka. They picked a combined India-Pakistan 11, like yeah. Sachin Tendulkar <laughs> opening with Syed Anwar, like Azhar, Wazim Akram. And they played in Colombo to kind of prove to everyone that, hey, it's safe to come to Sri Lanka. And, and I use that to illustrate how they, how the South Asian teams came together. Came together. Like, can you imagine that happening now? Like, can no. you imagine like... You know, India and Pakistan having a combined eleven, like, oh, we'll, we'll play together. Like, you know, Rohit will captain Baba, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we'll have fun. Um, well, they did, didn't they? Do it for the was it the tsunami? Yeah, uh, it was, it was. But that was like a, a yeah, it was Asia eleven, eight, India, Sri Lanka, no, no, rest of the world versus Australia. It was, rest of the yeah, world, yeah, rest yes. of the world. So it was a bit different. Like here, India and Pakistan actually came together. And we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna help our little brother out here. Our little brother, little sister, whatever you want, have have that you brings a tear to my eye thinking does, about that. It does, you know, Wazim and Azar coming together, and and Ranatunga thanks both at the end of the World Cup. He's like, I want to, you know, I want to thank Azar and Wazim for bringing, um, you know, the boys out to Sri Lanka, you know, because it was a, it was a, a show of unity, um, and it was before India became the powerhouse that they became, um, so perhaps things were on slightly more even keel. I mean, what obviously, you know, there was there was. Uh, you know, confrontational moments on the cricket field, but I think outside of that, it was it was fairly harmonious. And going to your your point about the security in Pakistan, I feel sad that even t- teams that make it to Pakistan never actually get to experience Pakistan because they're just surrounded by yeah. security, right? Well, that's a question I have for you on that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, nowadays, when 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 players go on cricket tours, back mm. then you would say, hey, if you're going to India obviously be careful bottled water when you go out to the city don't try street side you know <laughs> yeah. Bailpuri and pa- Papri Chart you know make sure you're taking those precautions but I almost feel like nowadays a tour to a, an Asian country it's like India Sri Lanka Pakistan or even England are you actually touring the place no nah, you're not like it's they're like oh, Australia's tour of India they're like oh yeah this, this is gonna be great for you you're gonna get so much culture it's like bro you're staying in five star hotels yeah. for like three weeks or four weeks and then like, you're taking a bus to the ground <laughs> yeah. you're going to the net and then you're coming back to the hotel exactly like these guys like yeah they're not really 
I think I think the last kind of generation to really experience India for India was probably like that Steve War kind of era, where like Steve War would go out with, go out with his camera and take pictures and things like that, and yeah, that inspired him to set up a. I don't know if he set up a philanthropic organization, but he did a fair bit of charity work in Kolkata yep. and stuff like that. But um, unfortunately, I think that time has has gone, and it's interesting because the day of the it, it kind of it. Um, Made me remember another story about the 96 World Cup. So the day of the final, um, and I hope I'm not leapfrogging here. Well, is this a top five? Is it part of the part oh, of the final? Oh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's part of the final, yeah. Let's, so let's save it for, let's let's save it for save it. top five. <laughs> let's save it top but five. I want you to remember it when we, come, but, uh, but when we guess, talk about it. I guess Gaddafi Stadium, like, it's amazing. It, like, I remember What I remember about Gaddafi Stadium, like watching the final, especially when Sri Lanka was batting, was this packed out stadium, mm. people cheering, like it's, it's reverberating through, um, you know, through the ground. And now in Pakistan at international games, it's just dead. There's just, yeah. there's not, there's no, there's very little crowd. There's no atmosphere. Um, and also what's really interesting is Pakistan, Pakistani society was completely different then. If you look at the people who came to watch in 1996, the way that like they're dressed is completely different to now. And I'm not just talking about the development in fashion. I'm talking about like, you know, the move from perhaps a slightly more secular society to a slightly more religious society, which I think is another interesting shift in Pakistani society. But anyway, I, I feel like I'm monopolizing uh, no, the, the mic here, mate. I'm so. learning. I'm, I am learning. <laughs> in terms of an overview of the World Cup, I'll be brief here. It was, uh, I'll call it a fantastic World Cup. It had yeah, everything. It's a great World Cup. It was a World <laughs> Cup dominated by leg spinners. And we might cover that a little bit as we go through some of the segments. Dominated by leg spinners. It was the addition that took quick hitting, as you said, Virosh, to mm. the next level. Mm. Pinch and, hitting. Yeah, pinch hitting. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, we've got to contextualize it. One day cricket, my dad always used to tell me this story about one day cricket, which was, when Alan Border was a skipper mm. in eighties in in the eighties and early nineties, mm. he famously told his players, "If you're batting first in a one-day match, I want you to score a hundred after the first thirty overs, and then you get a hundred in the last twenty. Mm. I want nothing more than two hundred. Mm. And that was seen as this score that would, you know, most of the time win you a one-day game. The cricket world in '96 is coming from that sort of generation where you didn't routinely score 300. You didn't routinely score 350. It was, you know, that was few and far between. And so this World Cup with some of the big hitters, particularly from Sri Lanka, it changed one day cricket in some ways. And I wouldn't say it was a long-term effect. I think after 96, we still went back to that sort of more 200, 250 style one day game. But this was a World Cup that, Sri Lanka really changed the dynamic of um, of opening batting in cricket. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you there. I mean, actually, I, I, a shout-out has to go to Martin Crowe, who was the NZ captain, um, former NZ captain who's unfortunately passed away, but he was, he was, a, he was a very insightful skipper, um, tactically was very shrewd, and also a fine batsman, perhaps one of the most underrated batsmen of the um, mid-'80s to, to early-'90s. But Martin Crowe actually came up with the idea of hey, let's put someone at the top of the order in one-day cricket who has the ability to hit over the top. And I think it was, I think it was Mark Retbatch. I hope I'm not, I'm not um, incorrect there, but I think it was Mark Retbatch. Anyway, 
And that kind of worked. NZ went to the semis and famously lost to Pakistan, um, who went on to win that World Cup. But in 96, the good thing with Ranatunga did was he's like, well, why don't we do it with both openers? You know, get both openers out there who are pinch hitters. They were fortunate in that the pitches in the subcontinent are pretty flat. So you can kind of take advantage of those first 15 overs. The ball is not going to deviate off the pitch too much. There's not going to be heaps of lateral movement, maybe a bit of swing, but... You know, otherwise you can you can pretty confidently hit through the line, and it's kind of in those lat, particularly in those middle overs when the spinners come on, where it's a little bit more difficult to score, and that's where you probably want um, your a your best players of spin and b players who have a wide array of strokes, a wide repertoire of strokes, so that they can um, you know pierce the field and and score runs accordingly. And so Ranatunga picked these two pinches that pinch hitters at the top. Guru Singer at three, he, and his Guru Singer, he just told, "Hey, you just <laughs> you just bat through the innings, right? That's what I want from you." Guru Singer was a bit of a he's a big lad. He was a he Avishka, was, Avi, no, um, Avishka, no, um, Asanka, Asanka, Asanka. Asanka. Yes. You think about Avishka Fernando, who oh, is right. a yep. shadow of Asanka Guru Singer. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no offense to Avishka, I'm sure he's a, he's a good player. But anyway, um, who, Asanka Guru Singer now lives in Melbourne, apparently, um, with Russell Arnold. No, no, no Russell Arnold's in, in, in Sydney. Oh, is he Metabank? Oh, I, I think don't know. so. Apparently Ian Healy's caught up a couple of times with Guru Singer for dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah, fun fact, anecdotal. Um, and uh, he said, he said, Asanka, all you got to do, Guru, all you got to do is just bat through the innings, right? That's what I want you to do. Aravinda was given no brief because he's Aravinda. You don't give Aravinda a brief. Then Arjuna at five. And then Roshan Mahanama at six and Hashan Tilakratna at seven were just, they were pretty much told if, <laughs> pretty much, if our plan backfires or if we have a collapse, you guys are there to resurrect the innings, essentially, which is actually what happened in the semifinal. If you, if to, to, to an extent, that's like actually what happened in the semifinal. And both those guys scored runs in the semis. But um, it's very different to the model that used to exist. I wouldn't say it exists now. Now it's just like, let's just have power hitters throughout. But it's, it's different to the, to the model that came about afterwards where they were like, oh no, we'll just have, you know, good steady players at the top and our pinch hitters will be at like six and seven yes. and they'll take advantage of the last 10 overs. Um, so it was a different model, but it worked for them. And they, Ranatunga, Mark Nicholas said this, who was another, um, who was, who was a former captain of Hampshire, very good broadcaster and a good writer, one of the few good cricket writers around now. He said he met up um, for dinner with Dove Watmore and Arjuna Rantunga at the some beach, some some famous uh, restaurant known for their chili crab uh, in Sri Lanka. Yum. And, <laughs> and he was amazed at how confident they were that they were going to win the World Cup. And then secondly, he was amazed at how well planned um, well planned is the wrong term, but how well prepared, sorry, they were for the World Cup. And he would, and he said, I would go almost as far to say they not not only did they think they had a chance, they thought they would win the World Cup. Wow. Um, and uh, you know that goes again back to I think that batting order, like Ranatunga and Dav Watmore put a lot of thought into that batting order. It didn't just it, it didn't just come by luck. And um, I think it was the right blueprint to play in the subcontinent at that time. Now it's different. You know, you you have a new ball at either end. So a ball really only gets 25 overs. I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. You know, the grounds are smaller. The bats are bigger. It's different. But at that time, uh, with the conditions they were given, uh, I think it was absolutely the right blueprint and um, they executed it accordingly.
his legs again, the same way Manjreka got out. Ajay Jadeja was never comfortable out there. Jay Surya pitching this one up outside leg stump. Jadeja trying to sweep, missing it all together and having his leg stump pegged back. So, Sri Lanka find themselves in their first ever World Cup final. That is it for this episode. Next week, we really celebrate the stars of this World Cup. We've done the context. You're now locked and loaded into this World Cup. And then we unleash on the stars and everyone in between. We do our favorite segments and categories. And one of my new favorite segments, the Oscars. Could you make a movie about this and who's starring in it? So thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. And I will see you next week. Thank you.